And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. All the people calling me Besh. So this is Besh. I'm Besh. <laughs> this is my name. And uh, Beshwa is meaning frontline fighter. I'm proud of it. Yeah, you should be. Today, we're taking you on a journey from Iraq all the way across Europe. But first, we'll start at the end, in Gonsant, a suburb of a small port town called Dunkirk. And Dunkirk is in the north of France. It's about 20 miles from the shores of the United Kingdom. We're actually at a refugee camp, and like all refugee camps, everyone here has a story. But we've come here for one particular story. The majority of the people here are Kurdish Iraqi, and they're in transition. They're moving and taking chances every night to cross over to the United Kingdom. In part one of today's episode, we're exploring one family's story, how they got here in the first place, and as if their story wasn't extraordinary enough fleeing their hometown for safety and stability, this particular family actually lost each other in the shuffle through Europe's elusive borders. And in part two of this episode, our search for this family opened up a whole nother set of layers that we want to share with you. The intricacies of the inner politics and workings of the refugee camp in Dunkirk. I'm Razan Alzayani. And I'm Hibbe Fisher. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Let's get back to Bash. Let's start with the story of Bash and his family. Rewind about two years. Bash is 24 years old. He works in Erbil, Iraqi Kurdistan's capital city. And he and his four brothers and parents are originally from a small town about two hours west of Erbil. What was your life like in Erbil? Perfect. I was. Uh, I had three jobs. I was working with the many organization, and I was a musician. I was working with uh, many uh, film directors, and I was happy. Bash worked in Erbil, but is from a small agricultural town called Zmar. And uh, Zmar is a, it's a pretty mixed town that consisted of both Arabs and Kurds living side by side in relative harmony. Most importantly, though, this town has oil. At the beginning of August 2014, there was news that Islamic State militants were fast approaching the town. Ever since ISIS, ISIS began their violent rampage, Erbil is extending tens of thousands of militants extending the boundaries of what they call their own Islamic State. We, we planned to go to empty the, the, the village in the morning, but because the, the ISIS was coming very fast, they got many cars, and they were southern and southern, shouting, takbir, and even we are Muslim, and they are Muslim too. But there is a different way. And uh, they were killing people, they were take ladies, take young people, killing old people. The population, like in the village, they were so afraid about that. So we decided to empty the village in the morning, but the leader said, we, we, we feel that they are so close because we hear the gunfire. So what we can do? The, le the leader said it's better to leave it now immediately, like after one hour. So we could just give, bring some that we need, clothes or money, gold of my mom and these stuff. But then the bombing started. Start bombing in the village. Like coming, like raining. So I just could bring my guitar and going to the car and my father was driving the car, we leave the village. So Besh, his four brothers, Karoch, Isa, Muhammad, Dejwa, his mother Runak, and his father flee the city in a Toyota pickup and head for Kirkuk, a Kurdish city in the north of Iraq. And my father said to me, hey, give the identification. I was searching and there's no identification. At a government man checkpoint, Besh's father turns to him and asks him to hand the family's ID cards. Where is it? I forget. In the table of the TV. This is my big mistake. 
if you have a paper or ID ID card, you are lucky, because when you're in danger, you, I just not forget my guitar. Even my father said, "Are you human? Why you bring your guitar? Why you not bring your your identification? It belongs to you." He forgot everyone's IDs or just his. Everyone's IDs. He left them on a table in the living room. What about the fact that those people left in such haste and they have fled in all sorts of directions? They are dispersed. What kind of challenges does this pose to get help to them? Islamic State militants took over Zmar in just three days, leaving so many locals stranded with nowhere to go and a genuine fear of returning home. Bash and his family then head to a UNHCR camp in a place called Arbat. Arbat came to become one of the most crowded camps in the country, with intermittent electricity, inadequate sanitation, and dire living conditions. With the people who was coming came from, from Syria, from Kurdish part, from the other parts, we were all together. And after the condition there was not nothing. No food once in the day. We were coming like in paradise to to the hell because we were a rich family. We had we had we had more than one hundred sheep with uh, horses. Even my horse till now is they said alive. Your horse is alive. We we were in shock when in the camp they give you a little bit bread and uh, eat. You don't have any choice. So after six months. My father said, I will not accept to stay in there. Go. Where? Go to Turkey. The living conditions were so difficult for his family that Besh's father told his son to take the rest of the family to Turkey. But his father, a Peshmerga sergeant... So you're saying Peshmerga? Peshmerga. Peshmerga? Yeah, Peshmerga. It's the name for the Kurdish armed forces. And I said, I'm not coming. But he said, I'm a sergeant. If you come to be my soldier, I give you an order to take this family to Turkey. So just do it. He gave him an order, although Besh wanted to stay with his father and fight. He had to listen. That's why. Otherwise, I'm not... Till now, I feel shame that I'm here. Otherwise, my destination and my place is to stay in Iraq and fighting. For my land, for my people, for all Iraq, for Kurdish in a specific way. But because it's an order, what's more important? Your home your land, your country, or your family. Because they had no papers, they had to resort to paying smugglers 600 US dollars per head to enter Turkey. And they walked for 10 hours through the mountains and crossed into Turkey. The family make their way to Istanbul, the big city with promise of work, even if it was work that was just under the table, and a refugee community to kind of lean on for support. Only after a couple of hours after arriving in Istanbul, Besh and his family were walking in town when they were randomly stopped and asked for identification. When they couldn't present anything, they were arrested and taken to a police station for questioning. At one point during their detention, the police officer turns to Besh to ask him about his guitar. They just said to me, this is yours, yes, this is mine, yeah. And uh, they said, you're a musician? I said, yeah, I'm a musician. And they asked me many questions, how, how many instruments that you play? I was explaining that I'm playing this and this. And after I said, yeah, I play guitar too. And the police officer said, this is this guitar? Broke it with the, with the shoes. And I, I was, did nothing. I was laughing. I was bleeding inside. And he said, why are you laughing? I said, because if you are strong enough, you will not do that. I can't find another guitar to play one day. Broke my guitar, but you cannot break me. I'm here in front of you and I'm Kurdish. I'm proud of myself. If you like or if you're not. But look at your face. In the mirror, when you go back to home, when you're sleeping and when you wake up in the morning, ask yourself why you did that. Why? What did he say? She said to me, shut up, close your mouth. So just to jump in here, it's not only that Besh and his family illegally entered Turkey. It's a long-standing 40 years war between the Turks and Kurds over Kurdish independence. 
with Kurds comprising the largest ethnic minority in Turkey, an estimated 15-20% to of the population that likely influenced the police officer to act this way. Which brings me to wonder, why, if there's such tension between the two, why did Besh and his family, as Kurds, go to Turkey in the first place? It was the closest, safest option, given the circumstances. You, you tried to climb asylum in Turkey? Can you imagine? But there's many Kurdish people said, are you crazy? This is Turkish. Turkey. After about a year, September 2015 to be exact, Besh and his family decide that they can't stay in Turkey anymore. As Kurds, they just, they felt discriminated against and they had no official papers. They couldn't seek asylum and were just stuck. And so like the hundreds and thousands of others, they set their hopes on Europe. They made the journey to Greece on land and walked for three days in the rain. So many people on the move. It is a regional crisis. It is not only a European crisis, it's a regional crisis. It is also a global crisis. Well, this is one of the border Many have been here for hours, if not days. With 200 people. There's uh, like 10 or 12, 40 families, babies. Ladies, they are homeless. They don't have place anymore. From Raqqa, from Halab, Aleppo, from Kobane, we are all together. It is a mountain, so we have to climb the mountain and go and go and go. As they approach the border to cross into Greece, Bash, his family, and 200 other refugees have to climb this mountainous, hilly area. We were afraid because the smuggler said, don't even be careful with the sound of your feet when you walk. Because they have dogs, if they know, they will shoot you. They don't care about that. You are a refugee or you are not. You came in from Iraq or Syria. They're shooting because this is border. So that's why we were, not me, but people were crying. The women. It was like uh, you feeling strange you leaving your home and your country and you don't know where you go. It's like an unknown destination. Despite their carefulness to not draw attention to their group, border police find them in the forest and arrest them. They separate the men and the women from each other, even though there were families traveling together. They were separated. I don't know why. They separate women and men to not be together. Like in... We were... It was, it was like a dream. So Besh's mother goes with the woman on one bus, and Besh and his four brothers are with the men, waiting in the forest for direction. I didn't know why they, why did, why, why they did that, but they, they did. So we, we, we saw that maybe they will send the woman first as a human being, because they, they are respecting women more. Okay. Oh, okay, like we're going to end up in the same place. Maybe they're just doing a more humane thing by taking the women and children first. It's cold, it's raining. After two hours, three hours, four hours, we were waiting in the forest on the same bus. When they took all the women away, the same bus was came back with other three buses to take all of us, the big bus like that. The bus turned to jail, go to the way is called Orestiada, the police station, Besh just thought, okay, I'm going to meet my mom when we get to this detention center. And because, I mean, everyone's processing their paperwork. Everyone is registering their names, where they're coming from, their ages. And so you just kind of assume you're going to be able to ask a policeman, hey, what about this woman? This is her name. This is what she looks like. This is her age. Where is she? Where is she? When those first buses left the forest with all the women, many people lost their female relatives too in the shuffle, but those women had mobile phones on them. You were not free to go outside. It was like this, and they will give you food, three, three meals in the day, and of course water and tea, and you, you had many things. It was fine, but the only thing is uh, that many people with me, they lost daughter, they lost wife, they lost mother, the same as me. But uh, they, they got the phone. 
they, they, don't, they know that where are they. The bus that their mom was in never arrived. It had gone someplace else. The Greek police asked them a lot of questions. They processed their papers, and because of the mass influx of refugees coming in daily, they had to keep making space for them. So they had to keep moving them to other camps in the country every couple of days. And they're, they're detained, so they're not allowed to leave. They're not allowed to leave. We saw that she's dead now, or she's somewhere, or she's... That's it. We didn't have any news. 45 days. Maybe she's dead somewhere. Maybe she's back to home. Maybe she's looking for us, like we do the same. Maybe she's here, in the other camp, but you don't know where. His mom was in the Peshmerga for 11 years. She was a fighter. So she's one tough cookie, but she only speaks Arabic and Kurdish, and that also worried them. After 47 days in the Greek camps, Bash and his brothers are finally released, and they have no idea where they're going to start looking for her. This was raining, and I was outside. And the police officer said, go to, just go. Don't stop here like a child. I was not feeling cold or hot. I didn't feel anything. I just, I said, just answer my question, nurse my mom. Why you took her from me? There's no answer. And they just did that. So easily, you don't know why. Bash and his brothers searched one refugee camp after another in Greece. I was started in Greece, 17 camps. All the place, all the area. All the area. I got a picture and I was showed all the people in the camp and they all said no. We didn't see them. And the police was uh, checked in the computer in, uh, in Athens. But they said we cannot find it. Bash uses Wi-Fi in nearby cafes to search on his phone. Near from the tea shop, there's a Wi-Fi. And I was asking, can you just access my Wi-Fi for 10 minutes? I want to talk to my family. Refugee? Yeah, okay, no problem. And I was searching. Where's the camps in the city? Corn camps of refugees. This place, this place. And this was not like camps here, like here. It was small, or it was a, an apartment, like accommodation. The Red Cross, they, they said, maybe you can find her in, uh, in uh, Serbia or somewhere else because there's another camp in Serbia, there's two camps in Serbia. And I did the same, no news. I did in uh, Croatia, Slovenia. Austria, till German. He takes trains all over the continent. He and his brothers are hiding from train staff as they rode because they had no money to pay for the train tickets. Köln, Frankfurt, Nuremberg, and Berlin, and Hamburg, Pittsburgh. I don't know. There's many cities. I was not tell my father that my mom's lost because I was afraid he will coming. I just said, uh, he was asking, where's your mother? I want to talk to your mother. And I said, my mom is praying, my mom is sleeping. He's in, she's in toilet now, uh, every time lying. Suddenly in Berlin, there is a breakthrough. Besh shows a photograph of his mother to an Iraqi family, as he's been doing all over Europe. One of the... The family, the Iraqi family, I was shown to pupil even. And the, the woman, she was like uh, 48 years old. She said, show me again. And I showed to her and she said, she was here. She was with us. And she said, where is she now? She said, you can't talk to the police. And I was talking to the police, she was coming with me. And we were waiting for two hours and after the lady was coming, she's an officer, and she said, wait, I will check on my computer, because I was made a registration for those people, for those families, and she could find the paper of my mom. And she said, yes, she was here, she was stayed one night, and after she was, uh, she was looking for her son, who, do you know this lady? I said, yeah, she's my mom. And immediately the officer hugged me and she said, so you are alive? I said, where is she? Just tell me. Where is she? She said, you don't know, 
But the lady in Arabic said to me, your mother was looking for the sons she was going to France. And I said, why? She said, I don't know. There's Kurdish people. They said there's camps in France. Maybe your sons will be there. That's why she came to France. Okay. We were at the camp in France. And the police officer helped me. She said, there's camp in Calais. You can go to there. And you didn't have money. Nothing. Just the phone. She said, you cannot go from Berlin to Paris. The police will not let you. So you can go to Belgium, Brussels, and in Brussels you can go to France. We were standing inside the train and the captain came and he said, ticket. I said, no ticket, why? I'm refugee. And suddenly he was talking Arabic. Oh, who came from? I came from Sudan. I came from Iraq. Hello, how are you? And he said, okay, don't go. Just go to back of the train. Don't do anything. Go to there and I'll bring coffee and bread for you. I could feel her, believe me. When I was in France, I said to all my brothers that my mom in France, she's here. Because I could like feel her laugh and uh, her smiles, her words of speaking. And she was the same, she was feel the same. And when, when, when I was in Grandstand, she was still people, she said, I think I I will see my son in this week because all the camps, volunteers, refugees, they, they were know about this. That this old woman, she lost sons, five sons, and, and and it was evening when I was coming. At the entrance, I was coming and I was shouting, "Runak, runak!" Till I was coming to the middle of the camp, and I saw my mom was in the near from the fire. And when she saw us, she was running for for us, and she felt, um, come on, wake up, this us, finally. She said I was safe, but she said I was not, like, aware. She was, like, in shock. She said, I don't remember how I crossed all these countries, because the only thing I was looking is your faces. And we were all cried. That's why I'm not crying anymore. <laughs> because I had cried many times. So when uh, she was just touching our faces, that it is you, it's real, it's not a dream. But uh, we were reunited again. Besh and his brothers scoured 72 camps in Europe to find their mom. And this is how I first met him. I followed him to Gansan to hear his story. And we're sitting in his makeshift office inside a shipping container. And the camp here is towered by just the buzzing of pylons overhead. And it's straddled by a major highway on one side and train tracks on the other. There are hundreds of wooden shelters and they're all made of plywood, kind of like, um, Kind of like a small tool shed. And this is where the bachelors and the families live. They're square shaped, they're relatively small, they have no heating or electricity and have just enough space to sleep in. There is a main kitchen where volunteers cook throughout the day and there are free laundry services, a charging station, there's a school and there's even a refugee cinema. That one's a hard one. Magic. Magic. After their long and emotional journey, Gonsanth was not Besh's family's final destination, and it really isn't for most of the refugees currently living here. About a month ago, Besh's mom and his three brothers made it to the UK, where their English is an asset, there are job opportunities, they have established Kurdish communities living there. And the UK is literally right across the water from France. It's a two-hour journey on the English Channel. While his family left for the UK, Besh actually decided to stay at the camp. Wait, after all that, Besh doesn't continue with his family? Yeah, so this is where the story kind of deepens even more. I learned pretty quickly that the reason that Besh decided to stay behind when his family left 
is because he's grown into this role at the camp as a helper, fixer, an unofficial leader. This this is the person that people call when, for instance, like I'm sitting with Bash in his office and a group had tried to cross over to the UK but failed and were caught by the French police and they had called him for help. Uh, you can take the call if you want. Oh, yeah. Because uh, so they're not waiting. refugees. Hello? Janaka. Guitar Namawa. It is a refugees in the camp and uh, they were trying to go to UK after they failed or they were arrested by the police. They were set free, but the police will take them far away from bus station, train station. So they're calling me and they will ask where we can go. I will give them like a destination. We will send the car to pick up them and to bring them back to the camp. You can imagine that after searching through 72 camps across Europe, he's a pretty resourceful guy. I was not sleeping. Till now, I'm not sleeping in the nights. That's why I'm here for now. Otherwise, I, I, I could go to UK with many different ways. Many people. Even I don't want to tell you, many people try to help me to go to UK without smuggling. But this is a choice of yours. Yeah, because of uh, now I'm a part of this. I'm a part of the refugees. I'm not fighting. I'm not uh, in, in, in my country to remove this shame on my face. That way I can help people here. So you're really proud of what you do now. It seems. Uh, I have to say thank you, Mama. Because she made me. She raised me up like this. And this is where things take another turn in our story. So I'm sitting with Besh in his office and two men walk in and just hover over me, waiting to speak to him. Do they want to ask you something? Mm-hmm. Thank you. What's the smugglers fight with one of the refugees and they said will not let you come inside the camp anymore. Really? Yeah, so he, he was asking to have a car, to have a car, to send him to Calais. How can they prevent someone coming in? That's why I'm not climbing asylum in France. Why do you be careless about that? You know, I told police many times about that. Many times. The chief of the police. I told them, just be a hero, come. I don't care if they are Kurdish, they are Iraqi, Pakistani, Somali. Smuggler or smuggler. So now what are you going to do? I have to help this man. Is it, is it dangerous if I go? Do they care? For me? For me? Yeah. Fine. For, me. For you, don't close to me. Don't come close to me, he said. Living at the camp, it's a constant navigation of crises. So this is where the whole underground world of smuggling opened up to me. The issue of smuggling overshadowed every single conversation I had with anyone at the camp. Be it refugees, volunteers, or security staff, smugglers seemed to be all they could discuss. And this world is heavily political. It's organized. It's semi-organized. There are good smugglers. There are bad smugglers. And we'll explain all of what we found in part two of our episode. To recap where we are in our story, after Besh and his family spend a year and a half shifting from one country to the next, trying to find a safe place to start their lives over again from their home country, Iraq, and after Besh and his brothers are separated from their mother and then remarkably find her again through it all, three of five boys and the mom make their final crossing into the United Kingdom. But Besh and another brother elect to stay behind in Grand Centre, a small suburb of a border town of France that houses a predominantly Kurdish refugee camp. 
And some say the purpose of this camp is to make itself redundant. In March, there were 1,200 refugees living here. In June, 700. Today, they're under 500. Everyone is here to leave, to cross over to their final destination, the UK, across the water. And for this to happen, a political system evolved pretty quickly here, determining who leaves, how they leave, and that fate, this system, is in the hands of smugglers. Yeah, and this this all kind of evolved and unfolded before my eyes. As Besh and I leave the container, I walk outside and I see that the whole mood of the refugee camp has changed. People are yelling, there are a lot of men everywhere, there are groups gathered around, and there are no women, there are no kids. And you could tell that a fight was about to brew or had already happened. You could almost cut the air with a knife. That's how tense things were. As I walked to the entrance of the camp, I did see a man who was beaten up and bloody, um, and Besh was trying to figure out a way for him to get to a safer place. I get a call from Hafsa, the volunteer who I had been in contact with for a while, and she just said, look, we got to pick you up now, we're going to take you, things are getting serious in the camp, and we have to leave. Yes. Okay. You promise? Yes, promise. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Besh? Yeah. They're giving me a ride. How's it going? Good, good. Are you guys alright? Yes, and you? I'm okay. I'm sorry because no. I have long legs, so... No, no, don't worry. I have short legs, so it <laughs> works out. They were shooting, yeah. There was a shooting? Mm. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, I didn't hear anything. We didn't hear also, but we have to. <gasps> we, have, we have to leave the camp, so it's much better. You want to sit down somewhere? We can, do you have time? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Hafsa and Sohela, two local volunteers, they pick me up in their car with Sarhang, who's a refugee at the camp, and we drive off to the local McDonald's in the town. It's June and it's so cold. I don't know when summer arrives in the north of France, but it's definitely not June. I spent the evening and the next couple of days trying to dissect the the various methods of crossing into the UK, the system the smugglers use, and the effects that working in the camp has had on volunteers like Hafsa and Sohela. First days, it was like we were very innocent. This is Hafsa speaking. You know, we came, we were just helping, we were not thinking about what's really happening there. So we were just funny, talking to everyone, we were not, you know, uh, careful. Okay, let me give you a little bit of backstory. Hafsa and Sahila are two school friends and they're Dunkirk locals. They decided to volunteer nine months ago after they heard that Kurdish refugees were streaming into a makeshift slum in the woods of Ponsant. This was the old camp. The camp that Besh is in now is a new, fully constructed camp. Every week, refugees arrived by the hundreds, and this quickly turned the area into a rat-infested, muddy wasteland. It was known as the Gonsanth Jungle, and was dubbed as Europe's worst refugee camp. With so much to be done and so many people in need, the two friends quickly found themselves there on a daily basis. Day after day, we realized that it was not just a camp. There was a system inside, a policy. Day after day, we realized how was the camp and how we should help people or not. The camp has double faces. Sometimes I was sad when I saw volunteers to come in the camp and they were giving shoes without knowing they were giving shoes to smugglers. Maybe they can sell the shoes. There's a lot of situations like this. During her first few months working at the camp, Hafsa said that she helped a female refugee that was raped by one of the smugglers. And it, I, when we helped her in the beginning, we, I was just coming like this. Yes, come and we would bring you somewhere else. But it was very dangerous to take someone. It's the customer. So we should not break the business to them. I've been to her tent and she started to say everything happened to her. She started crying and yeah. And then I said, let's go, take your bag, we go. But you know, it's not like this. There's a lot of smugglers everywhere. <laughs> they are looking at you, what you're doing, etc. I remember the showers. Oh my God, there were just one shower for 3,000 people, right? Four showers, but they didn't work properly. Uh, no, just a two toilets and a two shower. This is Sarhang, a Kurdish refugee. And the shower is from... Uh, 
the smugglers. Yeah, the smugglers. smugglers. Yes. What, what do you mean? How does a smuggler own a shower? Right? They told me that at the old camp, the smugglers charged five euros per shower. So Hafsa and Sohela would rent a hotel room for a night and shuffle refugees in for shifts so that they're just able to get clean. When you go for the first time to the camp, this is Sohela. You can imagine how big is the backstage. You just see the scene, like refugees playing football, playing tennis, playing baskets, living, talking, you know. But you cannot imagine how the world changes when the night is coming. And the refugee camp really does change at night. During the day, you see kids playing around in their bikes and women and children cooking and guys just hanging around and having tea. But at night, the mood really changes and you can tell that you can tell that there's a purpose for the night. Attempted crossings to the UK mostly take place at night. Groups of men leave the camp just with backpacks and they just disappear into the woods. The men prices As Hafsa and Sahela discuss their experience with smugglers, Sarhang, a refugee at the camp, he interrupts us saying that not all smugglers are bad. That's the system. I'm sure just for this I want to uh, smugglers. Uh, they are helping us mm-hmm. so much because already they come to me. If you know anyone, don't have money, we can take him free without money. Mm. Already they are coming for that. There's good people, good smugglers. <laughs> are there good smugglers? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yes. They are. And uh, we have some smugglers. I called him Angel of Smugglers. Hafsa and Sarhang, they're close, you can tell. And they start to bicker like siblings over this topic, the fact that they are good smugglers. She pipes in to explain that because Sarhang is also one of the unofficial leaders of the camp, he helped a lot of people. And so the smugglers have a good relationship with him. But yeah, but for it's first, different. No, sorry. Um, at first you say don't uh, participate. No, no, come. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a kid. No, it's, it's anyway. That guy from the beginning he was helping everyone. So the smugglers, they love him, and they let him to go to UK for free. As I sat listening to them in McDonald's, the realization sunk in that yes, smugglers can be violent. Yes, smugglers take advantage of the vulnerable. But the smuggler-refugee relationship is much more fluid than we think. Hello, good afternoon. Hi, is this Dr. Elsa? Yes, it's me. So my name is Ilse van Liemt and I currently work in the Urban Geography Department at Utrecht University. I did my PhD on human smuggling um, at the Institute for Migration and Ethnic Studies in Amsterdam. For her research, Dr. Ilsa interviewed 56 refugees who had all been smuggled through various methods and ended up in the Netherlands. I noticed in my own um, work is I call it a chain of trust. So the smuggling that takes place within the region is very much embedded and people most of the time know their smuggler or they at least know somebody who knows the smuggler. There is like really connections. Uh, But when people travel far away, the closer they get to Europe and when they then are dumped or they end up in transit and they lose the connections, then there is much more exploitation going on. Have you ever heard of good smugglers in your work? Good smugglers are not necessarily friendly. (laughs) They just just do what they promise you to do. And most people refer to smugglers as necessary evil. It's something that you just have to do. It's not somebody who's nice, but somebody who knows what he's doing. Before the media gives a, a very black and white image of what smuggling is, um, and there is a very dominant discourse around the mafia and the peop- that migrants have no control over the journey. But well, but in my field work, I found out that people do make decisions and that there is choice. Sometimes it's restricted, but there is definitely choice. And people have all sorts of strategies to try to find the best smuggler who brings them to the best destination. That smuggling is... Well, it's a market, so so there is business strategies and trust turned out to be very, very important. So not only for the refugees, but also for the smugglers. So it's much more complicated and it's really embedded in social relations and in communities. I looked also into court cases and and there is 
very, very few people who are willing to testify against their smuggler. And that's very illustrative, I think, because it's somebody who does something against the law, but at the same time, he also saves your life. So, uh, you want to know about the system? This is Sarhang. I sat with him to further discuss what he knew about smuggling operations. He often helps smugglers by climbing onto trucks to read the destination address to make sure the stationary trucks in the parking lots are bound for the United Kingdom. But first, a little bit of his backstory. Sarhang fled Erbil in March of 2015. He tried to go to Canada to join his sister, but his visa was rejected. He then tried to join his other sister in Germany, but was forced to fingerprint in Hungary when he was passing through the migrant trail. This seems to be a common thing, this forced fingerprinting. There have been several reports of forced fingerprinting in Hungary, a country that's been pretty hostile to refugees. How does fingerprinting affect their lives? Well, technically speaking, the country that a refugee first sets foot in, in Europe, is the country that they're meant to seek asylum in. That's kind of the reason why Greece has been getting a lot of flack for this, is because they've let a lot of refugees through without registering them as asylum seekers. So basically, the country that they register their fingerprints in is the country they're required to seek asylum in. So Sarhang fingerprinting in Hungary means that he can't seek asylum in any other European country. He found himself in Gonsanth after hearing there was a Kurdish camp near Calais. He's tried to cross into the UK eight times now, and as you can imagine, he's in limbo at the moment. So, can you talk me through the process of leaving at night? How does it work? Uh, middle night. Middle of the night? Yes. Okay, what do they take? Like 11, 12, 12, 1, something like this. It's funny because the first day I went to the camp, I went around 10 a.m. And everyone told me that I was there way too early. The camp wakes up around 3 in the afternoon because they stay up all night trying to cross over to the UK. Mm-hmm. And they go where? Uh, someone is going by, by foot, by walk. And she's going to the parking. I cannot explain to you where's the parking. The parking? Okay, Sarhai explains to me smugglers work on their own as in as individuals, or they work in groups. And these smugglers claim different parking lots as their territories. And these territories are where the lorries are stationed before continuing on to their final destination. So picture this, we're on the border of France and these lorries are bound for the UK, Belgium, Germany, or elsewhere. And they're carrying crates of veggies, onions, tomatoes, you name it. And they station at this border in these big parking lots. These lorries drive onto ferries that make daily crossings over the English Channel. And um, they are waiting for smugglers when the smuggler is going to to there for open the truck and they are going to inside truck. Uh, the groups, uh, they have a very good and very big parking for trucks. It's a single, they have a park, but not very good park and far to here. The groups how they are working uh, they are going to inside park they say to us stay in here when we are open the truck we are checking and we are coming back to here for take you so the driver doesn't know no. he never knows not never at the three o'clock four o'clock we are going to inside track and we are staying in the truck and uh, at the morning eight o'clock nine o'clock he's coming to open the truck when he saw refugees, he closed the door, they said, keep quiet, like help, you know? So the smugglers open the back of these trucks, but not every truck is UK bound. But when they open the trucks, they bring me to inside the parking for reading address. Because I can speak English, uh, I can read English. And they said to me, just uh, read it, it's for UK or not? When I said yes, it's for UK, uh, they said, okay, it's UK. We can take uh, people to inside the truck. Sarhang tells me that the trucks that promise the highest chance of successfully crossing over undetected are the refrigerated trucks or the freezer trucks. The temperature inside these trucks is minus 27 degrees. And there have been horror stories of people stuck in these trucks that were accidentally bound for Germany and not for the United Kingdom. How long does somebody stay in the back of a truck for? Six, sometimes 12 hours. 
Sarhang says the good smugglers give them two to three sleeping bags to take with them so that they can bundle up for warmth. They respect us. They say to us, it's crazy track. Anyone cannot control himself. Don't go. It's okay. Getting onto a truck is the first step, but as you can imagine, these situations often don't go as planned. Two weeks ago, uh, I'm going to inside one truck. Uh, the truck is gone with uh, two children and uh, one family and uh, Hatao, Oscar's mother, and uh, she was with me. Hatao is young. She's the wife of a British national who can't sponsor her to live in the UK with him unless he makes a certain level of income. He didn't want to leave her and their one-year-old son, Oscar, at the camp by themselves, so they live together there while they make repeated attempts to cross over. The truck is not going to, to control. It's going to another park. I, I don't know which park or... The not. truck that they were in essentially didn't drive to where it usually drives through for customs checks. There are just police in there. Not control, no security, not anything. Just police and like that area. Okay? And uh, when we are trying to... They found us and uh, they said... Come to outside, like very, very big sound. Come to outside. They step outside, Sarhang recounts, only to have the police let their dogs loose on them. And uh, the dogs hit us so hard. And I'm just one children behind me, just run. And two times I'm back down, and the police hit us like an email. After that, I said, just I want to know why. And where's humanity? Where's Europa? Really, it's French? Really, it's uh, European humanity? Where's... Sometimes I said, where's where's my God? It's not like Kufr, you know? Just ask. Where's uh, Rahma? Rahma from God? Not for me. <laughs> I don't care about me. But what about children? What about uh, women? And Hatao is not good until now. She said to me, and, uh, every ni- not every time, uh, every night, but uh, maximum night, I'm just, uh, that dog is coming for me in my dream. Border patrol into the UK happens on the French side. And if the truck successfully makes it over to the UK, then the refugees are in the clear as soon as they hit British land. What is the percentage of people that successfully make it over? This is Sohela again, one of the camp's volunteers. At the... Like the beginning of March, 7 March, there was 1,200 people, you know, and now we are in June and there are just 700, so... A lot of Mediterranean I thought they're really strict. No. Really, there's a lot who are in UK. When I've been to UK for helping them, especially in Glasgow, I was just sitting in a park and they were like, Hafsa, Hafsa, they all, they are all here, really. I was shocked. How much does it cost to be smuggled from the French border to the UK? Yeah, so I'm really glad you asked this question. Let's talk about money. But Besh was telling me the price that you have to pay is like 10,000 pounds. It's for guarantee, if you go by guarantee. It means you go to UK for sure. The main price is, it's 2,500 pounds. You pay one deposit and you pay the rest when you arrive to UK. Oh, okay. That's the system. Wait, so if I paid 2,500 British pounds, I may make it over. If I paid 10,000 British pounds, I'm guaranteed to make it over safely? That seems arbitrary. And where do they get that kind of money? They sell everything they own. They have savings, and contrary to popular belief, not all refugees are poor. Do they pay their smugglers in cash at each point along the way? How, do, how does that work? Yes and no. Let's break this down a little bit because it may get really complicated. There are several ways of paying smugglers. The first is to pay a deposit to the smuggler and then the difference once the refugee arrives. But carrying large amounts of cash leaves them so vulnerable to theft, crime, exploitation, especially in a lot of these camps that are mostly unpoliced. And then we have the hawala system. Hawala? So hawala is derived from the Arabic word haul, which means transfer. It's an off-the-books informal banking system that has been used in capital centers in the Middle East and parts of Africa and the Indian subcontinent for hundreds of years. 
and it works on a system of trust. So we've established here that the majority of refugees here, they don't carry cash on them. This cash is given to brokers or hawaldars who work in Kurdistan or the country of origin. So these brokers, they're most of the time small business owners. Let's say they own a car dealership and at the back of house, they do a little extra on the side. So let's say a refugee wants to cross to the United Kingdom and they want to pay 3000 British pounds. His connections in Kurdistan, whether it's friends or family, will pay the car dealership owner this amount. The owner, broker one, let's call him broker one, contacts a second broker in France, let's call him broker two. And broker two owns a supermarket and tells him the amount that is to be paid to the smuggler. So the family in Kurdistan that is giving 3,000 British pounds to the car dealer, broker one, that physical cash that the family gives is not is not crossing the borders into the hands of broker to the supermarket owner. Like no money is crossing borders. Yeah, no money is actually crossing borders. And this is what makes Hawala so fascinating. Broker one and broker two, they know each other. They trust each other. So again, broker one tells broker two the amount that is to be paid to the smuggler. Broker one then supplies the family with a passcode. And this passcode is then given to the refugee. Who then gives it to the smuggler when it's time to cross over? The smuggler then gives the passcode to broker two in France and broker two will supply him with this money. Broker one and two trust each other and debts are sorted at a later stage and the brokers will take anything between a three to 5% fee. It's typically lower than, let's say, Western Union or formal banking systems. There are no transaction records, so it's really, really difficult to follow this trail. Is the system... Okay, so you're saying there's no paper trail following this cash, and this system's been around for hundreds of years. This is the modern Western Union. Is, is this is an informal banking system? Is it legal? The system is illegal in most countries, but in the Middle East and other areas, it's still practiced legally under a highly regulated license. With regards to smuggling, though, this isn't new. People have been smuggled for centuries, but according to latest Europol data from 2015, smuggling trade into Europe alone has a current turnover rate at 5 billion euros a year, and 20% of those transactions use the Hawala system. Refugees have, have always been smuggled. This is Dr. Ilsa again. Because they, for them it's really difficult to migrate in a legal way. They cannot go to the embassy and apply for a visa. So there's there have always been smuggling, but the, there has not always been that intensified border control. So the way smuggling is organized has changed a lot because it's, well, in the literature, it's called this cat and mouse game. So when there is more border control, then the smugglers also professionalize and and they charge more money and they need more technology and there needs to be document forgeries involved. And so the smuggling that used to be rather amateuristic and low profile has changed because of the the professionalization of border control. Yeah. It, it doesn't seem like there's a way out, but um, yeah, I think offering more legal options is, is the only way to kind of break the circle. The, the idea of the camp is not a solution for these people, really, because they become crazy, you know, in their minds, they are all the time crying. It's hard for a man to cry. If you see a man crying, it means it's the end. Really the end, especially during their journey, they've been, I mean, they take, they took the boat for go, going to here. They saw people dying on their way. Some of them, they, they are showing their, their feet. It's, there's a lot of scars in there, on it, I mean. They have a lot of trauma. Even they miss their mom, they are alone. Some of them, they are single men. They don't have any family around them, no support. They don't need the camp. They just need concrete solutions from the governments. Because yes, there's a camp, but this. I mean, it's not human to let people living in chicken houses. Really, these people, I mean, if you go by yourself, try yourself. You live in this place, you will lose your mind. And even when they make it to their final destination, like the United Kingdom, it's like their journeys begin again. And I've met a lot of people, I'm always talking about it, but around the UK, when I speak to them, are you happy once you made your dream come true? Are you happy? No, I'm not happy, they are all crying. 
they say, my, I feel like my journey is not finished. Because they, they, there's all this process of making the papers, home office, etc. It's never finished. And some of them try to kill themselves. I met a lot of depressed people. Even earlier, I was calling one guy, he was crying. He's just 18 and he said, Hafsa, I'm so sad. I'm so sad. This guy, he, he fought for seven months for going to UK. Now he's, he arrived today. He's not happy. Has this changed your life? Yeah, it's changed my life forever. <laughs> and I'm so grateful to Suela for that, really. Especially because, um, you know, we grew up with refugees in the city. It's been 10 years like this that they are here. In the beginning, I hate them because I didn't know them. I really hate them because they were on the streets and they were people, you know, have cliche about them. And I had cliche about them. And then I discovered them and all my cliche fell down. Me at September and me now, I'm really not the same girl. Really. It was the school of life, yeah. the camp, really. Yeah. The school of life. Now with the Brexit referendum, Britain is polarized. The majority of the British public voted for a future with tighter borders and restricted immigration, and uncertainty currently looms over the horizon, especially in a place like the north of France, which is the gateway to the UK. What lies in store for so many of the refugees? Will it be harder to cross over? Easier? Will immigration control tighten? No one really knows, and this is what many refugee experts are discussing at the moment. With all the political uncertainty around Brexit, the politicians in France have called on the French president to end British immigration checks around Calais, asking the UK to essentially man their own borders. I think the numbers, though, speak for themselves here. 2,000 refugees were living at the camp in October, 1,200 in March, and now there are less than 500. There are a lot of Kurdish refugees successfully arriving in the UK to seek asylum. And for now, I don't think anything might change. Now with Brexit, I don't know what will happen. <laughs> there is a whole new context. I have no idea. But um, yeah, there was a, a British dream, like the American dream. So in, in Britain, when you work hard, you will survive and you will be able to start up a business and earn money. I think for now, nothing really changes. I talked to a refugee lawyer and he told me that it will take at least two years before certain laws can be changed. But what I can imagine is that border control will even be more intensified. But still, the UK is a, is a very favorite destination for people, and that's because of language, job opportunities, and also an established um, ethnic communities already living there, especially in London. So that's very appealing factors that I don't think will change. Um, the UK has always been an island and very difficult to enter. So refugees have tried to enter and they will continue to try. So a couple of points to share with you. We had tried to get in touch to interview Besha's mother, Runak, who's currently in the UK, but it was so difficult for her to live through the experience of losing her sons once that she didn't want to live through it again. As another update, Hatao and Oscar are now in the UK after successfully making it over. This is the British national who wasn't able to bring his wife over because he didn't have a certain level of income. Sarhang is also now in the UK after successfully making it over. Hafsa and Sahela are still working at the camp daily, cooking for and supporting many of the refugees that live there. If you'd like to donate and help support refugees in limbo like some of the ones you heard from today, please visit this episode page on kerningcultures.com for more information. This episode was produced by Rezana Zayani and myself with sound design by Ramzi Bashur. Research and fact-checking by Jumana Talal and special thanks to Charles Gideon and Gregory Calais for meeting in Copenhagen to record some of the Greek you heard earlier on the show. Thanks, guys. A special thank you to Dr. Ilsa, Hafsa, Sohela, Sarhang, and Besh who shared their experiences and stories with us. And a massive thank you to Sylvie at Utopia 56. She helped us navigate through the many nuances of the camp. If you'd like to learn more about Hawala, or perhaps our explanation was a little hard to follow, head onto our episode page at www.kerningcultures.com for a brilliant infographic designed by Ahmed Barkley. As always, if you liked what you heard, please take a quick second to rate or leave a comment on wherever you're getting this podcast. Until next time.